Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a right white horse, its rider called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out in a loud voice, saying, To all the birds flying in mid-heaven, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies, gather together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with him the false prophet, who had performed signs on his authority, by which he deceived those who, were ex- who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That description, of course, of the second coming... Hard to imagine, hard to picture that. You know, when we look into the Old Testament, we find 60, over 60 major prophecies concerning the first coming of the Lord. What it will look like, how it will unfold, what will take place. And you know, at that time, those prophecies were given. There was some, it's hard to picture that. Hard to imagine that. Hard to really understand what was meant by that. Some of it just didn't make any sense at all. But you know what? On this side of the first coming, having seen that happen, we now look back at those prophecies and we notice two great things. One, 100% of them were fulfilled. And secondly, and this is the best way to read them, they were fulfilled just like they were written. They were fulfilled just like they sound. Can I just step out on a limb here and say God has a pretty good batting average at fulfilling the prophecies that He's given. Boy, we get excited, don't we? When we come to these, you know, end time events, these things like Armageddon. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that flow out of this. Horror movies, codes that need to be broken, secrets that need to be discovered. I mean, we just go nuts with this stuff. I mean, you know, we've seen this year all this excitement, all this craziness about the Mayan calendar. Most of us didn't know there was Mayans. But boy, we know about it now. Do you know a recent survey said 10% of Americans think there's something to this. They think there's something to this end of the world and, and what the Mayan calendar and what they predicted. You know, the crazy thing is the Mayans didn't actually predict the end of the world. They didn't say that was going to happen. Archaeologists found the calendar of the Mayans and it just ended at December 21st, 2012. They didn't say what that meant. A couple of interesting notes about that calendar and what we found, Mayans, very smart uh, group of Indians, unfortunately, when they were figuring that out, they didn't factor in leap year. Minor detail. 
If you go back in and factor in leap year to the Mayan calendar, then that means the end of the world was about two years ago. Doesn't make for a great movie, but nonetheless, that's what it means. You know, the other thing that's kind of interesting, and this hasn't gotten near the press, uh, archaeologists actually have found another Mayan calendar, and shh, don't tell anybody, it goes beyond December 21st, 2012. And yet we got people running around thinking, this is it. This is the end. That's what the Mayans said. I mean, it's almost like we're eager to get caught up in this kind of thing. And that's not just outside the church. Boy, right here in the church, we kind of go nuts about this sometimes. Remember last year? Matter of fact, at this exact time, I don't remember the, the exact date, but you remember that Pastor Harold Camping that was predicting the end of the world? I don't remember if it was in April or May, but it was right about this time, made big headlines and if you didn't read the headlines, I'll just go ahead and catch you up. It didn't happen. I don't know if you're confused about that. When it didn't happen, he said, oh, gosh, you know, I see where my error was. He went back and corrected it and said, no, it's going to be in October now. Yeah, that, that didn't happen. That didn't happen either. Gosh, we just, we just go wild with this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's easy to sit back and think, gosh, you know, when, I, when, when God was writing about all this, when God gave us all this information, it sure would be nice if he'd have been clear. It'd have been nice if he'd have been clear about what he was saying and there wasn't all the mysteries and the codes to break that only a few people got the secret password You know, it'd be nice if it was if it just would have been clear. You know, folks, if you think about it, we really are left with that kind of feeling, aren't we? That when we come to prophecy, it's secretive, it's coded. When believers do get together, they radically disagree on how it's going to happen and what it's going to look like. Folks, none of that is true. Yes, there are some difficult passages. Yes, there are some different, uh, different interpretations of how you look at it. But even those interpretations are not radically different. They're not disagreeing on what's going to happen or what it's going to look like. There's some disagreements in the timing. There's some dif- disagreements in order. But folks, there is a tremendous level of real clarity when we look at these events. As a matter of fact, listen to this statement that Jesus made About the end. See if this sounds confusing to you. It it seems pretty clear to me. This is out of Matthew chapter 24. And and, and this whole chapter actually is about what it's going to look like in the end. And Jesus says this in verse 36. He says, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Wow, how come so many Christians are running around trying to predict the date? I mean, what Harold Camping did last spring is not new. That's been going on for 2,000 years. We're going to hone in on the date. And yet, when I turn to Scripture, what comes right out of the mouth of Jesus is, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Verse 42, therefore be alert... Since you don't know, there it is again, the third time, second time. Since you don't know what day your Lord is coming, verse 44, this is why you must also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And folks, I think if you've got about a six-year-old reading level, okay, can we say that? 
There's clearly three things that this passage says. It doesn't, not open to a lot of different interpretations and what does this mean and what is it. Number one, Jesus said, I'm coming back. Can we agree on that? Pretty clear, not a lot of interpretation. Number two, nobody knows the date. Can I say that again? Because for 2,000 years we hadn't got it. Nobody knows the date. Number three, be ready. Live like it could happen right now. Live like it could be today. Now, that's not everything there is to understand. But boy, that's a good base, isn't it? And it's certainly very, very clear. Jesus, the Bible, tells us a lot about what is going to happen. What it's going to look like when it happens. How it unfolds. The Bible tells us a lot about why it happens. Why are these things coming? Why is it going to be this way? The Bible answers that. The Bible even answers another why question. Why did God tell us all this? I mean, I mean really folks, it, while we look at all that is going on there, we still want to know when, don't we? When is it going to happen? If he's not going to tell us when, why does he tell us all this information? Not a whole lot though on the when. There are no secret codes to break. There are no mysteries. It wasn't information given to a a precious few who will tell the rest of us when it's time. The Bible doesn't communicate anything like that at all. Yeah, I have a very simple theory on why God doesn't tell us when. Because that is a pretty big piece of information, isn't it? Here's why I believe God doesn't tell us when. If God had said, if we can open up the Bible, and there it is, I am returning December 21st, 2012, do you know what we would do? We'd live like hell for 2011 and a half years. And then we'd start trying to clean the place up, wouldn't we? I mean, folks, it, 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 there's a reason here. Watch this. There's a reason that every person in this room at one time or another has called mom and dad and said, what time are you going to be home? It's human nature, isn't it? We're not going to do anything until it's on top of us. And this information was given to affect how we live. Not five minutes before he gets back, but how we live our whole lives. So what I want to do today, I want to take a few moments and I want to look at what. What is going to happen? What is going to unfold? And then I want to look at why are we given this information? When we walk through these doors in a little bit, and, and some of us are reviewing, some of us have heard and studied it before, maybe some of this will be kind of new, but when we walk through those doors, why did you give me that, God? What am I supposed to do with that? The Bible actually says very clearly why we've been given prophecy. So let's look at the what is going to happen first. Now, when I say, folks, that we're going to look at this this morning, several years ago, I did a sermon series on Revelation. It took me 25 messages to get through it. Uh, A couple of years ago, I did a sermon series on on just the end time things that are going to be going on. That took six messages. Now I'm going to boil it down and do it in about... 10 minutes and 45 seconds. Okay, so obviously there's going to be a lot of things I'm not covering. I'm covering the big ticket items, the big pictures. I'm also not going into the differences. Yes, there are different views. There are different interpretations. But let me say again, the differences are not, oh, I don't believe that happens at all. Oh, that's wrong. Scripture means this. Scripture says this. What you're going to see in the different interpretations is just they move pieces around a little bit. A little bit different timing. A little bit different order. But the bulk of it, they still see pretty much there. Now, what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning is called a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view. 
That's how I'm going to be sharing this with you. Pre-tribulational means that the church is raptured before the tribulation. We're going to be taken up before the seven-year tribulation begins. There's a view that says, no, it happens in the middle. There's another view that says, no, the church goes all the way through the tribulation. We're here when the wrath of God is poured out. That's called post-tribulation. All of these views have their reasons. They all have reasons that they say, hey, this is why I believe this is what Scripture is saying. Uh, and I'm fine with other people being wrong. Mine's right, of course, so you'll want to follow mine. But, but there, everyone has passages. Everyone has their significant reasons. My view does have some questions. My view does have some challenges. Well, you're not really answering how that happens or when that happens. So pre-tribulational, that's when the church is raptured. The second one, pre-millennial, that's when the second coming is. The second coming I see before the millennial reign. We're going to look at a moment what the millennial reign is. Some believe in a post-millennial that Jesus will return after the millennial reign. Some believe millennial or no millennium. They don't actually, they're not saying we don't believe in that kind of rule. They just don't believe it's a literal thousand years. And so there's pre, ah, and post-millennial. I'm going to be looking at a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. So with that kind of understanding, we'll get start. I'm going to have a chart on here for you to kind of follow, for you type A's that got to get down every word I say. You don't have to do that. The entire thing you see up here today is going to be on the website this afternoon. Go to chbaptist.com. You can download the entire PowerPoint. So don't just relax. I'm the only one that's going 100 miles an hour right now. Because I'm covering the end in 10 minutes. Okay, here we go. At the beginning of the chart, folks, we have where we are today. I mean, when you're looking at a map, when you're looking at a timeline, you want to know where you are right now. We are in the church age. And the church age should be coming up here in just a moment. The church age is also synonymous with, are you ready for this? The end times. You're living in them. You ever heard somebody say, I wonder if... We're in the end times. Have you ever heard somebody say, I, what, what signs show we're in the end times? Folks, there are no signs to say that we're in the end times. The end times began in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. At that moment, we entered the end times. There is no other event that needs to take place before all this starts. You say, well, how do you know that? What did Jesus say? Live like it could happen today. So that's actually one of my disagreements with the idea being that the church will be raptured in the middle or at the end. If we're raptured at the end of the tribulation, well, folks, there are some very specific events that are going to happen in the tribulation. So if the church is raptured at the end, when Jesus says, Randy, be ready, I can't take him at face value. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's not going to happen today because this hasn't happened, this hasn't happened, this hasn't happened. Do you get the feel in what I read in Matthew 24 that that's how Jesus wants us to live? That we're supposed to be looking for signs? No. Now, there's going to be a ton of signs once the rapture happens. But what needs to happen from the moment Jesus ascended to the moment we're raptured? Not one thing. Folks, the rapture could have been a thousand years ago. It could still be a thousand years away. And it could be before you get home today. That's how Jesus wants us to be living and breathing and eating. So we're in the end times. The next event is the rapture. Now, folks, two, two phrases. The word second coming... And the phrase, the, the day of the Lord. Both of those can be a, a term, a title that represents the entire tribulation. 
It can represent everything from the rapture to the specific event, the second coming of the Lord. So sometimes when we're reading that, it's referring to the entire thing. So you can say second coming, you can say day of the Lord, and it includes all of this seven years. The rapture, though, and the second coming are actually referred to as two different events. There is Jesus coming, as you see there, for the saints, and there is Jesus in the second coming with the saints. That's two different things. In the rapture, Jesus does not come all the way to the earth. He comes to the air, remember? And the dead in Christ rise, they're resurrected, they meet the Lord in the air. Those who are alive, if it were to happen today, that's you and me, we would rise, we would meet Him in the air, our bodies would be transformed into our immortal, internal bodies, we would go to heaven, we'd go through our judgment, not a judgment for heaven and hell, that judgment's already taken place for me. Am I deserving of God's full wrath? Absolutely. And all of that wrath was poured out on the cross. Folks, God's wrath is going to be expressed. It's either going to be expressed at the cross or it's going to be expressed in the tribulation and in hell. Where's the wrath that you have coming being poured out on? If you've placed yourself under the cross, then you go into eternity and that judgment's not for heaven and hell. That judgment's for rewards. Now, while that is going on down on the earth for seven years, we enter what is called the tribulation. Matthew 24, 21 describes that as a time that has never been seen on this planet. Now, just think about Jesus' words in that statement. We've never seen anything like it. We've seen two great world wars that claimed tens of millions, not hundreds of thousands, not millions, tens of millions of lives. We saw a a bubonic plague ravage an entire continent. One-third of Europe died during the plague. We've seen famines sweep across Africa. Those are horrible things. And yet Jesus would point to those and say, no, you you actually haven't seen anything yet. So it gets worse than that? Well, folks, the things in the tribulation are much like those things, but here's the difference. Those things happened in a spot. As big a spot as it might be, it happened in a spot. When that war was going on, there was people who were living in peace. When that famine was taking place, there was eating people eating three squares a day. When, when that plague was ravaging Europe, there was people that were healthy and fine. During the tribulation, not one square inch of this planet is unaffected. Everywhere on the planet is feeling. Every person is feeling it. People actually know that they're in the end. They don't think they're in a bad time. They don't wonder, boy, when's it going to get better? They know it will never get better. This is the end. This is the, the pouring out of God's wrath. Believer and unbeliever alike will understand that. They will know this is God pouring out His wrath on sin and arrogance and pride and rebellion. They'll know what that's about. Now, during these seven years, basically there is the unfolding of seven uh, judgments. And those judgments are called the seal judgments. This is what Revelation chapter 6 through 16, that's the biggest body of information we have on the tribulation. We have, starts off with seven seal judgments. Now, when I say seals, I'm not talking about, uh, uh, uh. I'm not talking about seven wild rabid seals coming out of the ocean, Okay. We're talking more like if you picture a scroll, and on the scroll there's that that wax, that embossed stamp, that seal. Well, every time one of these seals on the scroll is opened, a judgment comes out on the earth. When these judgments come out, there will be a loss of of freedom, a loss of economy. There will be a loss of peace. One of the seals, just one of them, will result in one-third of humanity dying. One event 
will claim the lives of one-third of humanity. Let's think about the numbers there, folks. There's seven billion people on the planet today. Now, let's assume that one out of seven are genuine followers of Christ, genuine believers, okay? So when the rapture happened, one billion went up. One billion met the Lord in the air. So now there's six billion people on the planet. That means in that one seal judgment, two billion people will be taken in just one judgment. And if that's not bad enough, when we get to the seventh seal, this thing's almost over. We open the seventh seal and guess what it is? Seven more judgments. They're called the seven trumpet judgments. And every time a a trumpet blows, it brings out a judgment. And these judgments will basically destroy the earth's environment. They do more than that, but if you study them and look at them, that's basically what has happened. Folks, that statement has nothing to do with greenhouse gases. It has nothing to do with whether you drive gas or electric, whether we clean the planet up or not. These judgments will bring the destruction of the earth's environment and, and our planet One of these trumpets brings the loss of life for one-fourth of humanity that is left. Now, you do the math. It's been a long time since someone has been in math class. You remember how to make fractions so there's a common denominator and we add them up. One-third and one-fourth. We're now at seven-twelfths. In just two events over half the world's population, we'd be talking about in a two, three-year time period, the planet seeing the loss of 3.5 billion humans. That's the kind of devastation that we're talking about. We get to the end of the seventh trumpet. That trumpet blows, and guess what we get? Seven more judgments. They're called the bowl judgments. Each time a bowl pours out, it pours out the wrath of God. That six bowls, the the name we hear so much and, and think so much about, Armageddon. Armageddon is the sixth bowl, and that's when the, the, the Antichrist leads the armies of the earth against the second coming of the Lord and that big cataclysmic battle, which I just read in Revelation 19. You know, that sounds like it's going to be this big, huge battle, and it is. It's going to take about uh, 15, maybe 20 seconds. There will be no big battle. There will be no big fireworks. Jesus will speak, and the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Jesus will speak. And all the armies of the earth will be destroyed. So that's the the sixth bowl. And that's what we have. These judgments make up the tribulation. Now there's a big, big character in the tribulation, right? There's a big guy that we hear a lot about. And that is the what? Antichrist. That's right. Boy, wouldn't it be cool to figure out who he is? You can't. Yes, I sound very different than a lot of what you might hear or read out there. Follow the logic here, folks. If we could identify, if the Scripture had given us something to identify who the Antichrist is before the tribulation, then that means we'd be able to identify when the day of the Lord is, doesn't it? Yeah, and what did Jesus say about that? You can't figure it out. You're not going to know. You can't expect it. There is nothing that is going to identify the Antichrist for us ahead of time. You say, now wait a minute. No, 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 no. The Scripture says we know the mark of the Antichrist. It's 666. That'll help us figure out who it is. And my gosh, if you Google that, you can get like 10 million pages applying 666 to somebody. And in every one of those pages, because I I read every one of them. (laughs) Well, okay, maybe not every one. I might have missed two. But I'll tell you right now, without reading them, they all add something or take something away to make their math work. Folks, 666 is a confirming sign not a predicting sign. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we see the Antichrist in front of it, 666 will become clear and that will confirm. 
the Antichrist will not be identified most clearly. I think we'll see it in the first three years, but it's in the middle of the tribulation when the Antichrist walks into the temple in Jerusalem and demands that the world worship him. And if you don't, you will be beheaded. That is when you know that the Antichrist, ah, that's him, (laughs) that's the guy, you're not going to know before then. And anything else, trying to guess that, is nothing but a lie and foolishness. I think my favorite one growing up, uh, y'all remember, some of y'all from the 80s remember Mikhail Gorbachev. Remember he had that birthmark on his head? There was actually an article that said if you put an ultraviolet light on that, you'll see 666. (laughs) I mean, this this is craziness. And folks, you realize when people do this, they're making a mockery out of Scripture. Do you know Revelation is the only book of the Bible that ends with this statement? If you take one word out of this prophecy... If you add one word to this prophecy, then the plagues of this prophecy will come on your life. Pretty serious to take these words and twist them around and do wild stuff with it. Revelation was not given to us to make horror movies and secret codes, okay? We will not identify him. He is a world leader that it will be, have supernatural powers. He's not like a world leader. We've had world leaders that were bad. We had world leaders that wreaked great havoc all over the earth. This guy will wreak havoc on the entire earth and claim the worship of God from the entire earth. Now, with the Antichrist comes something else pretty mystical and fun, and that's the mark of the beast. And there's a lot on that. And most of that is pretty spooky, and most of that is trying to figure out if you can get the mark of the beast on accident. You know, have you heard about, you know, one day there might be a chip where we get like our driver's license under our skin or we might get our banking information so we can do everything, you know, with some chip under, you know, you just go by there and scan it at Walmart, you know, just the other day my credit card wouldn't work. And so the person came over and they put a, have y'all had this happen? They put the Walmart bag over it and then they scan it that way. I was trying to think, you know, if that chip was on my hand or what was in my head, I'd have a Walmart bag over my head and they'd be doing, you know, I can't breathe. You know, and so there's this fear. I want to figure out what the mark of the beast is so that I don't end up 18 years down the road and go, Ah, I got the mark of the beast. Folks, let me tell you something. All that technology and the things that people talk about, that might be, yes, that might be the kind of technology that the Antichrist uses. But folks, you can't get the mark of the beast on accident. And you can't get it 18 years before he gets here and starts his work. You get the mark of the beast. There's just nothing like going back and reading what the Bible actually says versus what everybody says about it. You get the mark of the beast for one reason, and that is to declare your loyalty to the Antichrist. You are looking at him and you're saying, that's my God, give me the mark. That's the only reason you get the mark. So you don't have to worry about if they offer that for your driver's license. I'm not suggesting you go one way or the other about that. But it's not the mark of the beast. You only do that to show loyalty to him. So that that gives us the tribulation. We start to come to the end of the tribulation. We have the second coming of Christ. That's Jesus coming with the saints. He battles at Armageddon. I've already said that. That that whole thing plays out. And then we enter the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. That is not heaven. This is not the beginning of heaven. The millennial reign is Jesus ruling visibly, physically in Jerusalem. And you say, well, now, if that's not heaven, why, why, why is that happening? What's that about? Well, during this thousand years, folks, it's a lot like heaven. Or maybe we would say it's a lot like paradise. It's a lot like what Adam and Eve had. Why do we have this time period? Watch this. this watch God close the loop. Okay? In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have God 
walking on the planet. We have two people who see God, who live in this perfect realm. And what do they do? They rebel against Him. And they give us the world that we have today. And isn't it easy for you and I to say, you know what, if I could see God, I'd believe. You know what, it'd be a lot easier to obey. It'd be a lot easier to walk with Him if I could see Him. You know, if I didn't live in an imperfect world, if I didn't live surrounded by sin, maybe I wouldn't sin. It's, it's easy to blame it on these other things. But wait a minute. God, Adam and Eve saw him. Adam and Eve lived in a purple. Well, yeah, but that was just two of them. I wouldn't have done that. Now we come to the end of the story. There's a thousand-year reign of Christ, and the earth is repopulated with believers. Believers who became people who became believers during the tribulation. Not many will. And most who do will be beheaded, according to the revelation by the Antichrist. But those who survive will repopulate the earth in the millennium. And at the end of a thousand years of watching God walk on the earth, a thousand years of, of, of almost a heaven-like state, Satan will be let loose. He's been bound for that thousand years. And revelation refers to a little season. Satan will be let loose for a little season. And it says he will go out to deceive just like he did with Adam and Eve. He will go out to deceive and say, you don't have to obey him. You don't have to live under his rule. We don't have to do it his own way. You can do it your own way. You can make up your own rules. Really? How many, how many people? I mean, if Jesus is ruling right there, if we see him, how many people can Satan possibly deceive? Revelation says their number will be like the sand on the seashore. He'll be able to deceive a great multitude. So see, folks, God will stand here and he'll point to the beginning of the story and he'll point to the end of the story. You know what he'll say to you? Your problem is not that you couldn't see me because people who saw me rebelled. Your problem is not that you didn't live in a perfect world and there were sinful people who did awful things to you all around you because I put people on this planet who didn't live in a sinful world and they too rebelled. Folks, our problem is not that we can't see God and our problem is not an imperfect world. Our problem is that we're rebellious sinners and that we will fight the rule and authority of God in our lives, every one of us. The point being, when you and I step into the position of being a child of God, when we step into heaven... It's not because we made the right decisions and did the right things. It's because of God's grace that gives us that opportunity. And so as we come through that little season and, that, and there is a war waged and that's when Satan is finally cast in the lake of fire for all eternity, then we have the great white throne judgment. This is the final peace before we step into eternity. This is where all unbelievers of all time are resurrected. They are resurrected to go before the great white throne. And Revelation chapter 21 describes it as the people who are going to throw open the book of life. They're going to throw open the deeds of their life. These are people who are going to go before God. They realize now what truth is. They realize now that they do have to answer to God. And so they're going to start trying to make justification for their life. Well, I did this and this and this. I meant to do this. I tried to be this. I tried to do that. Well, that's not my fault because that person did this and that's why I did that. Well, my parents raised me that way. That's their fault. And we're going to go through justifying with the pieces of life. And God's going to say, you know, all the time that you were walking on that earth, there was a Bible. And that Bible told you over and over and over, you will not be able to justify with the pieces of your life. You will not be able to justify your life by pointing at what others did. You can only be justified by the person of Jesus Christ. And they will move in then to eternal hell. And it is at that point that eternity begins. It is that point that hell is delivered. It is at that point that heaven is delivered. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem is all delivered at that point and we move into eternity. 
Now, folks, that's the very quickly what is going to unfold. What is going to happen? Now, we're getting ready to leave. Why did God tell us this? What are we supposed to do with it? Let me show you how Peter answers this question in 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to this. He says, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written you. In both I awaken your pure understanding with a reminder, so that you can remember the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. First, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, following their own lust, saying, Where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They willfully ignore this. Long ago, the heavens and the earth existed out of water and through water by the word of God. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded by water. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are held in store for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and one thousand years like one day. So by God's timetable, Jesus ascended two days ago. Kind of think on that for a second. Verse 9, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient, not wanting any to perish. God does not desire to cast a single person into hell. He's not waiting for the opportunity right here out of God's word, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will happen. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God because of that which the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved. Folks, Jesus Christ is coming back over 318 times. It says that in the New Testament. I am coming back. But boy, it's been a long time, hadn't it? How long does it take you before you think you've been stood up? You had a lunch appointment. You're supposed to meet at such and such a restaurant at 12 o'clock. How long before you start to think, hey, they, you know, something's gone wrong. They didn't know. They, they got the wrong date. Five minutes? Ten minutes? When would you actually say, well, I'm not going to sit here and eat by myself. I'm going to go do something else. When would you actually change plans because you're certain now that they're not coming? How long would it take? I'm guessing for most of us, not much more than 20, 30 minutes. I'm guessing for most of us, at the 30-minute mark, we're thinking, this is not going to happen. I'm going to move on as if it's not going to happen. Well, if you and I will do that after 30 minutes, then what do we do after 1,979 years? Because that's when Jesus last told us he was coming back. You see, folks, it's easy to begin thinking that it's, it's not going to happen. It's easy to begin thinking it's, it's not real. Now, I would imagine in this room today, there's a tremendous majority of you that when we walk through that up there, you say, I've, I've read that before. I've studied. I believe that. Believe every bit of that. We believe it. But do we? I wonder how many of us in 2012, we're five, five months into it. I wonder how many of us in 2012 have woken up just one day, just one day out of five months and thought to ourselves, I wonder if today's the day. Just one time. 
I mean, if we believe this, if this is this huge, massive event that all of humanity is moving to, and yet not one time we think about it. Or if we do think about it, okay, what if it is today? How many of us are making any decisions in light of that? Choosing a way of life in light of that? You see, folks, time has a way of grinding it down and making the biggest event in human history almost not real to us. And God knows that. God knows that time seems to be a contradiction to this promise that He has made. And so Peter says to us here that three reasons that God has given us prophecy. The first one, God has given us prophecy to battle our doubts. He's given us something to put in front of us, to keep it in front of us. A tremendous percentage of the Bible, Old and New Testament, is about the day of the Lord. It's there for you and I to read and to keep in front of us and to keep it real so that we're actually, watch this, I'm going to forgive that person because today might be the day. See, life is held accountable by God. And I am moving toward a day. We're all moving toward that day when that accountability will happen. And we start making decisions in light of it. So God gives us the future. He gives us prophecy to help us battle our doubts and to keep it real. A second reason God gives us that, folks, is to warn us. I love the way Peter says that there. He talks about how God's on a little bit different timetable. But then he says, you know, don't mock how long it's taken God to come back. You need to praise God for how long it's taken him to come back. That's his patience. God is patience. Look at it this way, folks. If the rapture were to happen right now, it just happened. There are people in this room. I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about people right now in this room. And you know it. You know it in your heart. You would not rise to meet the Lord in the air the rapture were to happen right now, you would move on into the tribulation and the judgments that are going to fall on this earth. And if you do the numbers, then more than likely an eternity in hell. But if we could say, God, 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 could you give it 10 more minutes? I know today's the day, God, but 10 more minutes. You see, that's his patience. The fact that you have 10 more minutes is his patience with you because he doesn't want, want you to perish. He doesn't want you to actually have to experience that. He wants you to know His gift and His grace. But what did Peter say? But. But the day will happen. It will come. And if you have today, it is for one reason. Did you hear that? If you have today, it is for one reason. God is patient with you. Third reason that God gives us the future, folks, is to affect how we live today. This is for all of us, those who do believe, those who are holding on to that hope. But Peter said it so beautifully there. Knowing all this, what sort of people should you be? And he says three things, holy, godly, and eager. Holiness is my position before God. I am holy as I stand before God. And that's not a statement about how well Randy Hahn has lived. Not how well I've lived in the past or how well I'm living today. That's a statement about how well Christ lived for me. That's a statement about how Christ died for me and my faith in the work of Christ on the cross. Romans 5.1 says that when I put my trust there, that I am declared holy. And that's now the position I have before God. And in that position, whether I live another day or, or 40 more years, I have a chance to grow in that and become godly. That's my personality. I begin to pick up the personality of God in Christ. 
And boy, in his personality, there becomes one great passion in my life, one great hope, and that's the return of God to this world. Because folks, ultimately, every prayer you will pray this week, ultimately, it's all ultimately answered in one thing, Jesus returning to this earth. That's when everything's fixed. That's when the healing comes. That's when evil is dealt with. That's the answer to every prayer. So God has given us prophecy to change our, our, our position, to change our personality, to change our passion, to affect who we are and how we live today. You cannot possibly look at this information without asking the question, can you? It begs the question. Jesus begged the question, are you ready? If it did happen today, would you rise to meet the Lord in the air? Or would you enter into the tribulation? You know, in Christianity, I am guessing, maybe the most used word is, how about this, saved? You ever heard that word in church? Saved from what? Saved from this! Saved from the pouring out of God's wrath. Saved from the tribulation. Rescued out of hell. That's what we're being saved from. Are you certain? Are you secure that salvation is yours? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. We shall be saved. Folks, if you're here today and you're not certain of that. Or you're here today and you know it. You know you're not saved. You know you have not done that. We want to give you that opportunity today. We're going to conclude our service like we do every service with a time of invitation. Giving you an opportunity to say, hey, I want to know Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And in a moment our congregation is going to stand and sing. And when they do, there will be pastors down here at the front. Just come forward and tell them, hey, I want to know Jesus. You say, come forward, man, there's a lot of people in here. Yeah, you know what? A profession of faith is public. A profession of faith is something you're proud of. As a matter of fact, it's so important that that's what the Antichrist is going to demand. You see, this is a lie that religion is private and personal. Something you just keep to yourself. The Antichrist will not give you that option. He will not give you that opportunity. He will demand in front of all watching that you make a choice. Christ today will not demand that you make that choice. He will not force you to do that at the fear of beheading. But he will call you. He will say, do not be ashamed of me. And I urge you to come forward. Tell one of these pastors, man, I want to know Christ. He said, I can't, I can't come forward. I'm sitting right in the middle of a row. There, there, just eight people each direction. You know what? Most of the people in this room have walked down an aisle. Most of the people in this room absolutely understand what you're doing and what that's about. And they rejoice with you. You wouldn't find them more happy to do something today than to slide out of the way for you and let you out. So you can come forward and tell one of these pastors, man, I want to talk to somebody about having a relationship with Christ. And that's what we'll do. We'll take just a moment with you to pray, answer your questions, and talk about how you can have that relationship. Maybe you're here today and, and you want to talk to somebody about joining our church. You know, folks, as you study the New Testament, you find out very clearly following Christ is not a solo journey. That's one of the reasons today we're showing you, we're showing off our life groups. We want to show you our relationships because we follow Christ in community. We follow Christ as a family. We follow Christ together. We're meant to be connected to the church. And not just on a roll somewhere, but moving closer and closer in relationship with people. Man, if you believe that God's leading you to be a member here, just come forward and tell one of them, I want to be a member here and we'll help you with that decision also.